Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. It was God the provider. Interesting in, in Scripture, it's used Elohim, which is plural. And for, for pure Jewish commentaries, they said, well, it, because it's the multifaceted things God provides. Uh, we see it a little different because we have, we have basically the revelation of Jesus is that God was community. He is one because he is in unity way beyond what we could even understand. They're in complete unity and agreement on everything. <clears throat> so it's one God, but he's referred to as Elohim, a we. <clears throat> I, I really appreciate that. And sorry, I geek out on this stuff. Elohim, God is used 32 times in Genesis 1. And it is always Elohim. He doesn't even use the word Yahweh in Genesis 1. Because Elohim is the God provider, the God that provides everything you need and makes it and makes it good and declares everything good. So this is powerful because he's saying, Yahweh, the Lord, your provider of everything that is good, your provider that creates you. Elohim is the great creator. And so just because I geek out on, on Hebrew and Greek, you're going to geek out on it too right now. <clears throat> so basically, I want to know, because it was often done in Israel, in fact, it was a big deal to God. He, he constantly had him do things like set up stones um, at Sabbath. Sabbath is an amazing thing. The reason they had kept Sabbath wasn't just rest, but to remember what God had done. And the beautiful thing, I don't know if you guys ever watched uh, Fiddler on the Roof, but I love the scene when they showed every family doing Sabbath. Because it's interesting the biggest part of Sabbath wasn't synagogue, it was home. Just like in the great feasts of Israel, which are amazing, like Passover. Passover was held in your homes to remember what God did. God loves family, loves homes. And in the home, basically, the, the father would actually speak a blessing to his wife every week. I think wives would like it if husbands got in that practice. He'd speak detailed blessings of appreciation and affirmation to her, and then they would speak blessings over their daughters and their sons. And they would remember what Yahweh, their Elohim, had done for them. It was a regular practice. So they didn't necessarily sing it, but it was still the practice. Because we enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts, we enter his presence or his courts with praise. And for me, I enjoy singing, but as far as leading singing, I'm glad that isn't restricted to singing. So that's why I'm asking you, what has God provided for you lately? <clears throat> and again, I, I don't want to, we only have so much time, so I don't want a, a sermon from you. I want like two, you know, one or two words for an answer. Everybody with me? This, this one you say yes. Uh, just so you know, um, I'm a construction worker, that teacher, and I learned to teach high engagement interactive. Because of that, I'm really patient. I can go two hours in silence if you guys don't say anything. So that's, that's your warning. <clears throat> yeah. I want to know right now, what has God provided you? And I, I actually want it recent. Because this is the thing they did weekly. So lately, what has God done? What, is, what has he done for you? What has he provided for you lately? And it can be anything. Someone speak out. Is that joy? Okay. I'm going to write sideways because... This board's short for me. Rest? 
Oops, that looks like best. Think of this as a general ed class. I'm making you learn to read left-handed writing. What has God provided for you lately? Go ahead. That's good. Oh, okay, yes. If I spelt it wrong, sorry. Your brain can autocorrect. <clears throat> what has God provided for you? Yes. Work? I hope this isn't volume. I'm writing sideways. Because it's that or i got to kneel down. Well, I keep down the first part because yeah. I change the um, verb into a noun and I set the vision because that's the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but what he specifically recently done, clarity. Clarity on the Oh, that's nice. I'm going to do that for that. Good. All of these are good. There's no wrong answer here. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> okay. And we'll go into more detail on this in a later exercise. Yeah. Okay. All right, I'm going to do it this way so I can write flat. Okay, pride. Sorry, we're at, I'm not, we're not going to worry about defining anything, so that's fine. Yeah, I saw the young man's hand. Yes. Was it? Luck? Oh, that's great. We're breaking the rules, but that's okay. All good. Finances. Yeah, I can say I'm into that. I, uh, a little over a year ago, I had two strokes. And we just, just last night, we were at my wife's 50th uh, class reunion. And the health gets different when you're at your 50th class reunion. Actually, it was sobering for a lot of people. It was, I mean, it was a good time, but uh, they read off the list of the, the, those that are no longer with us, and it was like 20% of the class. And me being a math geek, I couldn't help but bring up and say, yeah, because by your 10th, we'll go from 68 to 78, and according to normal demographics, you can expect about a third of us in this room will not be here for the 60th. 
My wife wasn't real thrilled about that comment, but anyway. <clears throat> but it just, to me, it was sobering why I thought it was good they were all, because they had a good turnout. And I think it's because as they lose, they realize we need to get together now because by the 60th, who's going to be here? <clears throat> okay? So, thinking. I don't know if you guys prefer loud or if you prefer silent. But we're to think on the things the Lord has done. So we're going to look at that list, and we're just going to thank him. If you're comfortable raising hands up, thanking out loud, fine. If you're comfortable doing it in quiet, fine. Because God doesn't really put a stipulation, but he says, enter my presence. In order to become more aware of presence, it's always tied to appreciation. That's in both old and new. And we'll, we'll touch on some of those scriptures. But I find it powerful and really interesting that even people that are really experts in inner healing, and there's a, one, one guy I follow, He's very involved in mission field, and he will go to places like Paraguay where horrible things have happened in villages. And he will help people heal from trauma. But he said, what we used to do wrong is we used to have people come in and talk about their trauma first. They said, what we learned to do different is connect them with Jesus and have them first tell us an affirmation or an appreciation memory. Because if they did that first, then when they talked about the trauma, Jesus was there. And I, I steal this line from him a lot in the school I teach in. He says, never let anybody go into a memory without Jesus. Because the only way the memory gets healed is if he's there in the memory. So there's a value in this. Even though this is going to seem mechanical, I think that's okay. This works. So we're just going to take a minute, however you like to do it, because I actually am not that familiar with you guys. <clears throat> but just I want you to spend a minute looking at this list and just thanking God be it in your heart or aloud, however you want to do that. So let's just do that now. God, we thank you. We thank you, Spirit, for your presence. We thank you, God, for all you have done and all you do. And God, we thank you for being within us and among us as a group right now as your people. And ask the Lord God, in your presence, you have your word come to life with us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I'm kind of deciding this. I'm not sure what works better for you. If you like visual, then you can read along with me the, the verse I have up. But whatever impacts you, if it impacts you more to close your eyes and really hear it, I want you to really hear it. I'll actually even start a little early because I, I know the, the verses that come before it. And, well, I'll just tell you because it's important. <clears throat> By the time John writes his epistles, we figure it's about around 90 to 95 AD. Even by that time, there were people going around saying Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. Even by that time, there was a lot of heresy. And he had to take on a lot of heresy. And he tells a lot of beautiful things in his letter. But I find it powerful that he tells you right up front at the start of the letter why he's writing. Like, what is the whole reason he's even writing a letter? And he starts out saying, this light, this thing we're telling you about, we have seen it ourselves, we have touched it, we have been there. Because he's, he's hearing all this nonsense, and he's saying, listen, I was there. I was with him. I touched him. I'm only telling you what I actually have seen myself, and I've experienced myself. 
And then he says this, We are reporting to you what we have seen and heard, that you too may have intimate communion with us. And yet, this intimate communion of ours is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that the joy among us may be full. And some versions don't include the word intimate communion, but it's important. I mean, you guys have probably heard of the word koinonia. This is the word koinonia, and he's saying, the whole reason I'm writing is so you have koinonia. But first you've got to get this. This is not just human koinonia. Koinonia was the word for severe partnership. It could be used in business, saying we are bonded forever in a, in a business we plan to never end. But it also referred to any tight, tight relationship. And he's saying, the whole reason I'm writing is so you could enjoy this kind of level of intimacy with us. But be clear, our intimacy is with the Father and with Jesus. See, this is a pretty crazy thing to say. Because he's saying, the intimacy is not just the two of us. We're all in this together. And then the reason we're writing these things with that is so the joy among us will be full. Jesus said that a lot. He wants us to have a joyous, full life. And I, I didn't want to ask this question because it would take too long. So I'm not going to ask you what joy is. I'm going to tell you what joy is, at least by, for what I'm saying it is. Joy comes from awareness of deep attachment and favor. I've had one, one uh, commentator, because we're going to later refer to Galatians 5.22, and for joy he says, relationship favor. It's not just, well, like someone said, oh, grace is grace and joy. It's all just not getting what you deserve. But it's something deeper than that. He is saying, God is enjoys being with you. It's interesting that the big blessing in the Old Testament that the, the priest had to recite over people had a phrase in it saying, God's face shine upon you. What he's saying is that when God looks at you, when you come in the room, his face lights up. Um, one, one book that I've read by a psychologist says it's interesting even with infants, because now they can do the science to test. When an infant sees their mother or father smile at them, their brain wires neural net pathways for connection. If they don't get that, they wire based on fear and they wire for protection. So God literally wants our brains to wire for connection based on joy. Joy that someone's happy to be with you. And this I find powerful because he's saying, the whole reason I'm writing this letter, I mean, I've got things to deal with, but it's so you understand God enjoys being with us. Clear enough? Um, can you go to the next slide? <clears throat> Sorry, I'm not. I usually click things on my own. If there's a pause, you can just ask Jesus, what, what are you doing, Jesus? <laughs> Here we go. Because <clears throat> I want to talk about the voice of the Spirit. Um, this is a thing, so just to give you a little background, most of my livelihood, I was a construction worker, and God just has a great sense of humor. I was a construction worker that never wanted to speak in front of people, hated conflict, would avoid it, and did not like making big decisions. So God thought it'd be hilarious if he'd give me a job where all I had to do all day was resolve conflicts and then later teach about it <laughs> and make big decisions, decisions that people's livelihoods were on the line. And because of that, I learned to have to rely on him. Like, God, I'm only in this job, and this decision we're making directly affects the 70 people in my area. I, am, I, can, I can't make this. You have to tell me what to do. 
And I, I just learned over the workplace how to hear God's voice in stressful situations. Then expanded just hearing God's voice in all situations. So I want to talk about that. And I even teach this in school now. I, I teach, usually I teach Old Testament, New Testament, and I teach leadership. But really, all of those are all the same class. It's how to recognize God's voice. And that, that's really all I teach. <clears throat> the source for joyful attachment, we really have to understand, is all in him. So this is from Ephesians 2, starting with verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. In other places, Paul even says, even while we are enemies, even while we think God is our enemy, he loves us. John said, here is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us first. Okay? It is by grace you've been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms. In order that in the coming ages he might show off, I know almost no version says show off, but it is, I know it says show, but it really is, it's, it's show as a demonstration. That he might show off the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That word incomparable, it's literally the word over and casting put together. So he's saying these overcasting riches. Now you guys live in Fortuna, you get a lot more sun. In Arcata, this is, this is a nice trigger for me because I think of this every time I see an overcast sky, which is a lot in Arcata. <clears throat> and when you see an overcast sky, it means the clouds are everywhere. And that's what he's saying is, his grace casts over everything. It's overcasting. Uh, go to the next slide, please. For in grace, through faith trust, okay, this is a concordant little version, so it doesn't read smooth, but it's powerful. In grace, through faith, trust, are you saved. And this is not of you, it is God's approach present. Not of works, lest anyone should be boasting. For his achievement are we. Uh, That's the word poema. Many people say it's poem, like a work of art or poetry. It includes that, but poema is way bigger. Poema means a great achievement. So we are his great achievement being created in Christ Jesus for good works, which makes us ready beforehand that we should be walking in them. And I'm going to stop and go on this approach present for a while. Uh, Almost all versions call it gift, and that's great, except it's a specific kind of gift. Because he is saying, your faith isn't really of you. It was given to you as a gift. But specifically, it was a gift that's called an approach present. An approach present works like this. Now remember, in their day, this whole idea of like all people are created equal that we hear, and that's actually scriptural, all people created equal, Not the way Rome thought. Not the way the Jews thought. The whole culture said, no, obviously, the wealthy are superior to the poor. The masters are superior to the slaves. Romans are superior to everybody. Greeks are superior to barbarians and Jews. I mean, it was just all class. An approach present could be used in a couple different ways. One is someone of a higher class decides that they won't have a a long-term relationship, friendship with you, they would send a servant with an approach present. And when the approach present came to you, it tells you this person, this governor, let's say, wants to have a relationship with you, which is a great honor. And it's unconditional, but conditional. It's unconditional because you do nothing to earn it. But it's not forced on you. You can say yes or no. 
But if you say yes, you don't get to just take the present. You are saying, yes, I agree to a relationship with you. Um, in that culture, they could use these in, in weddings. In a Jewish household, the way it would do, well, well first, the, the families would have to eat together and the fathers approve, but I don't want to get into that. <clears throat> Eventually, the young man who wants to marry the young lady would send a gift to her, or for her to the father. So to the house would come this approach present gift. And if the father agreed to give it to his daughter, she has a choice. She doesn't have to receive it. But if she does receive it, they are engaged. Because it's an approach present, which means if you say yes to it, I am saying I want a relationship with you. It was also a religious term. In fact, most of the places in Scripture, it's only used a handful of times, it refers to a gift on an altar. Um, in Luke, when they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, uh, Luke refers to those as approach presents. Uh, when Jesus said, if you have a gift for the altar and you have uh, an issue with a brother, leave your gift and go talk to that brother, that's one of the few places, that, again, it's an approach present. But here's what's just amazing. This is, this is where Paul blows it all away. Every religion, including the Jews, thought of approach presence as what we bring to God. And he is saying, no, while you were dead in sin, while you were not, you thought of yourself as an enemy of God, while you had nothing in you at all drawing you to him, he sent the approach present to you. He sent it to me. He sent this unconditional present that has nothing about yourself, that you don't do anything to earn it, you don't do anything to achieve it. He has decided he wants a relationship with you. And so he has given you this approach present of faith. And if you say yes to it, you're in a forever relationship. I mean, this is, this is important because this, when we were young, we were in college, they had us do the four spiritual laws to witness to people and all that. It didn't feel, sit well with me. And it took a while for it to feel, to, I just didn't feel right. And I realized finally what it was hitting me was, it was always, well, do you know if you're going to heaven or hell? That's, that was the lead-in. And then it was like, well, here's how you can know. And then you do the four spiritual laws. And if you're familiar with them, great. If not, it's okay too. But it was like to get them to say the sinner's prayer so they know they can go to heaven. But the whole emphasis is wrong. Because <clears throat> it makes it sound like the gospel is, you can say this magic prayer and you get to go to heaven. You've got your ticket. Now go on your way. And that is not what God says. What he offers is an approach present. What he is saying is, I have a gift for you. But when you say yes, we're in a forever relationship. That my gift to you is the God of the universe wants to be close to you. The God of the universe wants to guide you for your life. The God of the universe wants to speak to you. And if you do the other one, it gets weird. Like I've even had these weird conversations with students, even in discipleship school, where their questions are almost like, well, how much can I get away with and still be saved? And it's like, okay, this is showing you're missing the whole point. You can go your own way and take your best guess figuring things out, or you can have the God of the universe who's made a million, trillion, zillion decisions, and he's never wrong. So you want to have your best guess or the guy who's never wrong? It's like, it just shows the, the idea of what do you, why would you want to get away? You have a God that is pure love, that loves you, wants best for you, and was willing to talk to you all the time. See, I, I, I'm going to back up a little bit. <clears throat> it's not on this, but before this is Ephesians, is Ephesians 1. 
And there's a phrase that's used in Ephesians 1, it's used in Revelation a couple places. So it's used by both John and Paul, and it's the term, the casting out of the cosmos. Um, Usually English translates it before the foundations of the world. But Paul makes this crazy assertion. He says, before the casting out of the cosmos, before the display, before the creation of the universe, before the fall, before anything, God foresaw. And if we think this out, he is saying, before creation, God could see that for him to get his family back, it had cost him his son. Because God, the three in one, were enjoying community, and they're saying, this is great, but we want more. We want, we want to create this thing called humanity, all these people, and we want to be in fellowship with them forever. So he has this plan, and he does it. But he could foresee, when he did this, things were going to turn south. And it would cost him the blood of Jesus to get his family back. And he decided, well worth it, we're doing it. So before the casting out of the cosmos, he made up his mind about you to see you blameless and holy in his sight. So long before you were born, long before you did anything, he had made up his mind. I'm hoping you get that this is a joyous thing. You know, Jesus in Hebrews 12 says, Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. He not only starts our faith, he's the one that carries us the whole way through. It's really not about us. It's not about commitment. You cannot duty your way into this. He provides it all. And why? He endured the cross for the joy set before him. And some say the joy set before him was his restored honor. That can't be it because he had that before he became human. If he was after the honor from the father, he didn't ever need to leave. No, the joy set before him was us. So the joy of getting us back, he said, all worth it. I'm all in on this. Okay? Is this really getting clear? I want you to see, we were made to run on joy. Okay? <laughs> okay. All right. <clears throat> I'll go to the next slide. I'll, and while they go to the next slide, I'll mention Nehemiah. I, I want to tie this, because I know you guys are doing Old Testament. You're doing the book in Nehemiah. Amazing. I don't know if he's, you're done with Nehemiah 9, but it's powerful because in Nehemiah 9, it refers to them restoring, doing the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'm saying this because it actually does tie. <clears throat> Feast of Tabernacles was powerful. They set up and live in booths. And they do that to remember how God provided for them in the wilderness. And they do this. Eventually, they evolved on their own, this amazing celebration to celebrate how they got water from the rock when they were thirsty in the desert. And they do this, and I don't have time, but it's really a powerful celebration, although the Sadducees flipped out on it, but that's a whole other story. Just over-religious people don't like fun. Anyway, on the highest day of the feast, this is John 7, Jesus gets up and says, any who are thirsty, come. And when he says that, this this is when Jesus goes really public. Like, this is like, this is like a shift. It's the highest day of the feast. They all know what he's talking about. They're celebrating it. They, they've actually been reciting scriptures from Isaiah. And Jesus says this, and it's out of Isaiah 55, and it's a powerful promise that's messianic. It's a promise where it's, it's basically this whole thing. that says, anyone who's thirsty, come, drink free. Come have, wa- come have water and milk, and some say wine, freely. Why spend your silver on things that don't satisfy? Why labor for what doesn't satisfy? It, it's just beautiful, and, and uh, that's a whole other lesson. But 
But it's powerful because what Jesus is saying is, I am going to provide freely for you. And it's actually tied to a covenant with David. And there's lots of covenants, but the covenant with David was unconditional. Some versions say eternal, but eternal means unconditional because God had eternal covenants, but they were conditional, meaning they weren't really eternal, like the Mosaic. Because what happened was, his covenant was, I'll keep my part, you keep your part, and this will last forever. You know, and then we have things like in Joshua 24, they all get together and, you know, choose this day who you'll serve, and this is a celebration, we're all committed to Jesus, we and our families will serve you forever. And it doesn't work, because even by judges, I mean, Othniel, who was a hero in the middle of Joshua, has to become a judge to save Israel from their folly right away. I mean, Joshua dies, and they go to sin right away. And, and if I drew it like a picture... <laughs> Sorry, I'm almost tempted to give you a six, I, I do a six-minute overview of the whole Old Testament, but I am just going to tell you this part. <laughs> All of Judges is, Joshua, we're, we're, yeah, we're going to serve God forever. Right away, Joshua dies, boom. Othniel shows up, uh, a man, he was Caleb's son-in-law. It was interesting, he's in the middle of Joshua. He has to bring him up, and then they go worse. Then Ehud comes, brings him up, goes worse. By the time you get to the end of Joshua, Judges, Israel is doing stuff that even pagan nations are appalled at. I mean, you can't get any worse. And then you get Samuel, and it restores it. And then they, they demand a king, and God acquiesces and gives them a king. I mean, it's just bad news. The reason I'm saying this, because since you guys are doing Nehemiah, it's great. You know, everybody says, wow, they had to be punished for 70 years. Less than a tenth. Because over for 700 years, they go bad, God restores them. They go bad, God restores them. They go bad... It's like, not like God was like impatient. So for less than a tenth of, of the time that they kept going bad, and then he restores them. And then Nehemiah 8, this thing's amazing because when they read the books, they realize all our folly is our own fault. And they're on the ground and they have their nostrils in the noise, in their, sorry, their nostrils in the dust. And then he has Nehemiah, Ezra, and the priests go and tell the people, quit crying, stand up. Go get the choice meats, go get the sweet drinks, and if anybody doesn't have any, you provide for them, because we're going to have a big party, we're going to celebrate, because you're worried about your sin and guilt, and God is saying, no, this is awesome, because I brought you back. The part to me is, I'm thrilled, because I brought you back, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, that's where we get, the joy of the Lord is your strength. What he's saying is, your shame and guilt may seem holy, but that is not strength. Hanging on to shame does not make you stronger. And sometimes because of how we're raised, things we'll have like, I, I'd almost say, a, an anxious attachment to God. Like, well, yeah, I know I'm attached to God, but I, I better keep in line. I got to keep my thoughts right. I better read. I better, I got all this stuff I got to do out of duty to keep walking. Your relationship to God isn't that fragile. He wants you to relax and enjoy it because he is the one who provided the approach gift. And we don't have time to go into it. But he provides all the other gifts too. He is the one that keeps you attached. And what he wants you to do is relax and enjoy that. Um, now that I said that, i got to be careful. I'm not saying don't read your Bible, okay? I, I will tell you, um, I, maybe I can't say every day, but pretty close. I mean, I pretty much read Scripture every day. And God doesn't care or give me brownie points for it. I don't read Scripture because God loves me more. He, can't, he couldn't love me more than he does. He's mad about me. And that may sound arrogant, but it's a fact. So, you know, God's, God loves everybody equally, I know, but he's especially fond of the Irish. 
Anyway, um, yeah. I don't read scripture to earn brownie points. I'm convinced the God of the universe loves me. And I read scripture because it makes me aware of what he's saying and he's doing. And when I go out of my day, I pay attention to what Holy Spirit's doing in the lives of those around me. Because I don't have to do anything for him. Um, I don't have time to... Just a little thing I'll tell you about, about working with young students. We're all of the age that I don't have to worry about offending anybody. Because <laughs> you guys will get this. I get these young people. And they have these dreams. And they kind of see it like, like somehow they've reached some mountaintop. And they're right here at some mountaintop. And they want to hear a great call from God. A great call. I have to admit, I got bugged because our, our denomination sent a letter asking, tell me when you received your calling. And I almost wanted to flame them because it shows the whole concept of calling is, is a little off. Sorry, I received my calling into full-time ministry as a construction worker. And I stayed a construction worker until God moved me. You, you guys all have a full-time calling. I don't care if you're ever on staff anywhere. But they see, here I am, and God's calling me to this high mountain. And they think they're going to have this path that goes like that. <clears throat> and, they, and they have all these affirmations, which I believe in. I believe in the prophetic, and although I don't like to call it that. And they even say, like one person said, you have the gift of, of the, what is it, the guy with the needle to burst bubbles. Because <laughs> they have this dream, and I say, yeah, but the train looks more like this. Because what happens is, you don't get to walk like that to the mountain. You go down into the valley. And then when you're down in the valley, there's a little ravine, and you're going to try to jump that ravine, and then you're going to hit a creek, and that creek's going to run into a river, and you're going to wash out to the ocean. Then God's going to have to drag you back out of the ocean. And eventually, you may end up on this. But the amazing thing is somewhere during all that, you will start having breakthroughs. And the breakthroughs will start teaching you what we read earlier. That you're seated in heavenly places right now. You don't have to strive to get here. Because you're way up here. And what will happen is, as you're having the breakthroughs, you'll find out the things that you thought were big callings were really minor details. The big calling was that you were learning to enjoy God's presence. The real calling was, and it'll happen at different times, you'll realize, I am way up here. See, my, my goal, I almost put this as a slide and I chickened out, but when I get to them this part, it's about week three, I tell them my goal is that you see that when you start having big breakthroughs, you will joyously give up on ever trying to do any big thing for God. You have dreams of doing big things for God. And when you really get this, you will give up that. Because God doesn't want you trying to do big things for him. He wants you to enjoy doing all things with him. And when you enjoy doing all things with him and you walk in that love, now you can participate with what Holy Spirit's doing. <clears throat> okay, I didn't, that wasn't part of the plan. <clears throat> in catechism, you know, I was taught, God made us to enjoy being together with him forever. And then I was in a, well, I don't think you'll hear it. <clears throat> I was in parochial school, Catholic school. And, you know, who is God? I mean, this is the stuff they taught us. Who is God? God is the supreme being who made all things. Who made us? God made us. Why did he make us? 
God made us to enjoy him forever. But by the time I was 10, I'm like, really? Because really, you're making it sound like I'm nothing but the scum of the earth. It's only by grace I'm saved because I'm just such a dirty dog. And you better watch it out because God could just squash me like a bug anytime he felt like it. To my mind, it's like eternity with that sounds scary. I'd be on eggshells the whole time. And I felt like eternity somewhere, I mean, maybe let's say I do really well, I last 100 years. But somewhere in there, I'm going to do something wrong and then get kicked out. You know, it just, I just, I walked away from all that. And I was telling Greg this earlier, I, I came way early to go walk the river and just pray. And I am leaving the river because, and I did not expect this. God whispered to me, my roots are in Fortuna. I'm like, what? And he reminded me, I had walked away. So at 13, the, the whole Catholic thing seemed weird to me. At that time, they teach you things like, if you miss church, you're going to hell. And I go, so Jesus comes, lives with the bozos, we call the apostles, and the rest of us, dies this horrible death. But if I miss church on Sunday and get hit by a car on the way to confession and die, I'm done. But if I make it to confession and then get hit by the car, I may spend a little time in purgatory, but basically I'm golden. That was so arbitrary. I mean, and to her credit, because right, I brought this up to a nun in my, in my high school, and she didn't freak out over it. But I was just done. And then my sister and brother-in-law, who knew Jesus, they lived actually just, they lived at the very end of First Street here in Fortuna. And they convinced me, I was, uh, I think I was 16, I was a senior. No, no, I was uh, 15, a junior, because I couldn't drive it. Um, <clears throat> they convinced me to go to a retreat. And at this retreat, I met people that knew Jesus. Like, like wait a minute, like he talks to you guys? Wait, he's real to you? I mean, it was actually a Catholic retreat, but it wasn't like Catholics I'd ever met before. I mean, they were like my sister and brother-in-law. And they were very different, a very diverse group of people, but they just loved each other and loved on me. In fact, their whole thing was, we're not going to preach, we're going to reach. And I was so amazed by the way they were one, and I didn't realize this had actually fulfilled something Jesus says in, in John 17, but they were so one, it drove me to go read the Bible. And for a couple of years, I still wasn't a believer. And if you'd have asked me, do I believe the Bible? I'd have said no, but I could not stop reading it. Like I just grab a letter like Ephesians and they'd give me a Bible, which was nice because they had the letters like letter form. So it was real. They were letter, and I would just read them over and over again. And I realized because of them in Fortuna and that retreat there in Fortuna, I came to Jesus. And then God reminded me as I was, because I went for a drive by the place where that was. And as I'm driving, he reminded me, and your first sermon was in Fortuna. Because two years later, you were leading the retreat there. And that's the first time you ever shared the gospel. So it's weird. I'm Arcata boy, but I'm one of you. My roots are here in Fortuna. <clears throat> and I probably just told you more than you wanted to know about me, but that's too bad. What I'm trying to say here is we're told sayings like God enjoys us forever. But because of other junk we ever get taught or knocked around in life, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes what happens is we get false ideas of ourselves, and we get false ideas of what God's really like. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Go ahead and go to that, please. Because I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. 
I want to talk about the personality of the Holy Spirit. It's also the personality of Jesus. We talk about hearing Holy Spirit. People also say hearing Jesus. It's okay because Jesus and John says, the Holy Spirit will only say what I'm saying. So when you hear Holy Spirit, you're hearing Jesus. We okay with that? Okay, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, some people put a colon there and say the next eight are just describing what love is. Some people don't say it's nine. Whatever one you want, take your choice. It won't affect this. What we're going to do is an exercise no matter what. So we have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patient, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Does it make sense that the fruit of the tree represents the nature of the tree? Like if you see a tree with apples, you kind of guess it's an apple tree. So we want to know the personality of the Holy Spirit. We look at its fruit. So what I want to do is, I want you to turn the fruit. We'll start with love. I want to turn that into an adjective. So someone who's full of love, because we want to know about the personality of the Holy Spirit. If his fruit is love, what is his personality? Make that an adjective. Go ahead. Loving. Excellent. Any other words besides loving? Okay, lovely. I guess that's okay. Sorry to think, because I want to hear why I think adverb, but it's still an adjective. Okay. Giving. Tender. All right. I can't keep up with you guys. I misspell when I go fast. Okay, what about joy? What's, what's the adjective? Someone full, was it? Contempt, but I just like, I want to I get the easy one first. This, this, isn't, this isn't calculus. Was it joyful, you said? Yeah, there we go, thank you. Also, joyous is fine. Okay, now we can add the other ones. What'd you say? Laughter. Oh, thank you. Yes. Hilarity. And someone said content. That'll also come later. Okay. And I'm going to run out of space, and we're going to jump to the next one. Peace. Yeah. Peaceful. Very good. Okay. I'm just going to write content, because contentment's still a noun, but the adjective would be content. Relaxed. Well, I like that. Relaxed and still. Resting. Okay, let's go on to patience. Yep, patient. I'm actually going to add it here because I'm out of space. Okay. I'm going to add my own too. I always think when I think peace... And when I think of patience, I think of calm. 
that a calm, a person that really understands patience and peace, they're a calm person. You said we're rejuvenating. Kindness. Yeah, thank you. I know it sounds funny, but I've done this in class. That is a hard one. I'll say kindness, and I'll see them racking their brain. Kindness itity, kindness mean, you know, and it's like, you know, and so they think I'm starting to trick them again. <clears throat> Gracious. Thoughtful. Yeah, it's actually, yeah. <clears throat> okay, goodness. Good. That's actually powerful because actually the Greek term for goodness there actually talks about generosity. That's really good. So I'm going to write good and then I'm going to write generous. Faith, faithful. We always have that song, he is faithful. Okay, we got to move on. Gentleness. Oh, go ahead, Oliver. Loyalty. Oh, that's excellent, Oliver. Good. I like the word fierce. And people often think, well, fierce, it sounds like you're mean. I'm going, no, fiercely loyal. And so I love that you said loyalty, Oliver. I just got to make it look like the word loyalty because it looked like I wrote an R. Okay, gentleness. Yeah, gentle. I, I want to take the time to talk about this because a lot of translations say meek, meekness. And that's actually a very accurate word. What's happened, though, is in our language, we have lost what the word meek means. In Old English, meekness was often used of a king. And it was a compliment to say the king is meek. Because we think meek means weak and too soft. But actually, the way it was originally used, you had to have power and authority to be meek. Because someone who's weak couldn't be meek. Because meek meant the king has authority but he uses it for others. And one of the lessons Jesus taught us, and one way things get weird when you talk about submission and authority and, and leadership, is people are used to thinking authority is for the one in charge. And Jesus taught spiritual authority is never for the benefit of the one with the authority. It is always for the benefit of others. A person's authority is never for yourself. It's always for the benefit of others. And that's what meekness means. It means power used for the benefit of others. <clears throat> but gentle's fine. Self-control, I'm going to uh, take that one on my own. Except now I can't remember how to spell it. Self-control, really, literally the word is controlled from the inside. Because in a way... Again, I want to sound like, well, self-will. I will determine and make my way. I, I've done jail ministry for 20 years. And when, I, when we'd have a guy in for the first time, we'd say, 
when you get out, we'd like to see you at church. We'd like to see you out celebrate. You know, we want to be plugged in with you. No, no, I decided with Jesus, I'm never using drugs again. You're never going to see me again. And after a few weeks, I just tell them, the more you tell me that, the more I'm pretty sure I'm going to see you here in jail again. <laughs> because you think you have enough willpower to do this. And no. Jesus said, in connection, in joy-based connection, you will change. I, I've been around a lot, and I've known friends that are like way more disciplined than me. And one friend, and it's amazing because he's getting breakthrough now. He's like in his 60s. But <clears throat> read scripture, prayed, fasted more than anybody I know. His relationships in life were a mess, just to be real up front. Uh, lost his wife, lost his, just a mess. And he was just weird. It's like he thought it was spiritual, but he's spooky. Like, well, something's weird here. Oh, the enemy's attacking us. I need to go up to my prayer closet. No, you need to sit at a table and learn how to talk through things with your kids. Is they don't, he didn't have relationship joy with people. And the reality is, and I've learned this from Dallas Willard, who's an author I greatly respect, and a guy named Jim Wilder, because they've done more discipleship than I've ever done. And they say, we take people through the disciplines and we notice for some people it never works. And then one guy was honest and said, I only notice like for one out of four it works. Like they'll do them and it's not working. And the breakthrough they had was they realized and discovered if they don't understand, God enjoys them. If they don't understand, God is happy to be with you. He loves you. He's for you. All the disciplines don't work. But if they understand that love and joy, that gives them the freedom to also have love and joy with others. And it's the love and joy with the Father and the love and joy with others that gives them the strength to overcome. And I've learned this by reading books of guys that have worked with addiction people forever. And they say that's the key breaking point. You want to see someone free of addiction, let them enjoy a community where they know both God loves them and people love them. They break the addiction. They don't have that, they go back. He said, he said it's just every time they see that. <clears throat> so I'm not saying willpower, self-controlling means controlled from within. And we have the Holy Spirit within us. I like this term because what he's saying is the Spirit is controlled within himself. External things don't determine the Holy Spirit's behavior. That means he's not reactionary. When someone comes to us, like at work, because I, I, I eventually end up being a director at Humboldt. And actually, my career ended up being, I was assigned as a fixer of broken teams. And a big thing was teaching people, when you come in and people falsely accuse you, you cannot react based on them attacking you. We're going to respond always. In fact, the trick I used to tell them is, if someone's upset and they're which often, like usually you call tech help only because you're upset. Um, I said, your first response is to be a tell me more question. Because that gets you in a mindset of, I'm going to respond to what they're feeling, not react on what I'm feeling. So instead of feeling threatened, I'm going to respond with, tell me more. It's important for us to know God is not reactionary because sometimes we have this weird thought like, God has a plan for my life, and then I blew it on Tuesday. And it was like, God had a whole plan, and then I blew it. And it's like God went, oh, who could have seen that coming? Greg turned left instead of right. I'm done with you, Greg. You've got to go for third best. And it's like, no, this is the Holy Spirit. He, he is always himself. He is not reactionary. There's nothing that catches him by surprise. Okay? <clears throat> so we have this list. Can we go a little past? 
Is that okay? Okay, because I want to do this exercise with you right now. <clears throat> this is the personality. This, is the, this isn't the only scripture to support it. But when people say, well, what is the personality of God like? What is the personality of Holy Spirit? This is it. So he's loving, he's lovely, he's giving, he's tender. We didn't come up with the word caring, but he's caring. He's joyful, he's peaceful. He's generous, faithful, loyal. He's not reactionary. He's patient. That's his personality. So what do you expect his voice to sound like? Yeah. It's going to be like his personality. And I know this sometimes people think, well, this sounds soft, because what about when he has to correct us? Believe me, he has no problem correcting us. But correction always comes in connection. Like the way the world corrects wrong, why people don't receive it is, I mean, think of yourself. Do you want a stranger giving you advice? Or would you rather have someone who's connected to you, who you know they love you and care about you, and because of the relationship, they can be candid with you? So he will be candid with us. He will talk about faults, but he will never shame us. Yeah, there's a place for guilt. You know, it's, well, there's an, I'm going to give you this quick analogy. I want you to always think of guilt as if your oil light went on in your car. So when the oil light goes on in your car, it tells you to put oil in the car. Does it tell you to go around telling everybody, I'm a horrible driver, I'm an awful person, I'm just the scum of the earth, because you know what? My oil light went on. Does that solve the problem? No, what solves the problem? Put an oil in the car. <laughs> Once you put the oil in the car, what should happen to the light? It goes off. So God, out of love, will be candid saying, you need to change what you're doing. You're headed for the wrong way. And then you change. You don't sit there stuck in the shame. You change and go with him. You know, that's what, that's what actually repent means, is changing your mind to go with him. And the other thing it does is, is if you later give someone a ride in the car and they say, hey, thanks for the ride. Oh, don't thank me. You know what? Four years ago, I was such scum. My oil light went on. So you, you can't thank me for this ride. I'm, I'm dirt because my oil light went on. No, that's, that's just insane. But somehow we think it's God. Like, if I can feel really bad about myself, it somehow makes me holy. And God says, no, get your nostrils out of the dirt. Rejoice, because I'm glad to be with you. Sitting around in shame is not my call for you. <clears throat> okay, so we expect God's voice to be loving and tender. So the first thing I do is, because I want to talk about, can you go to the next slide, please? There's a practice, and it's going to seem mechanical. But I'll tell you, it's a practice that when you get it, we get used to as the habit, you will hear God's voice more clearly more often. And so it's a practice to remind us of calm, to recognize his voice. And it's similar to what we started earlier once. We already did this to a small degree just a little while ago. We're entering his presence with thanksgiving. So I want to take it a little deeper, though. I want you to, and this is why you have paper, because this one I want you to write about. I want you to ask God for a clear memory of when he relationally had joy with you. And it could be anything. It could be the joy of like a great time with a grandchild. It could be the joy of a walk in the woods. It could be just a time when he spoke to you. But we're going to ask Holy Spirit to remind us of a time when we were deeply connected with him. Well, actually, you're always deeply connected to him. A time he let you be aware that you were connected to him. Okay? So take some time, because when you write about it, and I hope I did that in the list. Uh, maybe I didn't. Can you try the next slide, please? 
is there was something. There we go. So a pleasant timer memory. I've told you I really want you to try and go deep. So I was going to try and make it soft, but I don't want it just, just a light feeling, like a time you were connected. But at the same time, it's not a small thing if, it, if, you, if God gives you a small thing. Um, what that verse is, Jesus said, if anyone gives you a cup of water, they will not lose the reward. So if Jesus notices if someone gives you a cup of water, then is anything too little for us to appreciate? So I want you to do this, but now what I want you to do is once he brings that thing to mind, write down when was it? Was it day or night? What time of year was it? How are you feeling physically? How are you feeling emotionally? What happened? Who was involved with it? So basically I'm hoping for you to write these details down. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 